I'm pretty bullish about 2024. I do think volatility will continue this year because like we're still in that weird cycle of like, there's still that underlying banking issue. The Fed's still probably going to raise rates one or two more times, maybe three. But I think we're getting closer to the end of it than we are at the beginning of it. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 90 with your hosts, Mark Svatsky, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, RH Investment Group. Ray Herto, RH Investment Group. And joining us today is our guest. Sean Podosian from Guaranteed Rate. Sean, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Honored to be here. You're like a one-name celebrity. You're like up there with <laughs> Prince or, I don't know, Madonna. I was trying to think of like Madonna. other one-name celebrities. Go. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my wife that when I get home. I'm like Madonna. <laughs> number, number one mortgage originator. It's like you're in the in the, in the, in the country. In the country. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, five years in a row now. Been the top uh, top guy in the industry uh, based on uh, volume and units. Taking a lot of pride in it, especially being from Boston. It's not like we're doing it in New York City or LA or something like that. So doing it right here in Boston and in the, in the surrounding area. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. Now the majority of your volume is in Boston. Ninety percent of it still uh, is right here in Massachusetts. You know we've grown our business. We're licensed in all fifty states now. So we are doing business in markets as our clients move, and we get referred to people everywhere else. But it used to be 99% as, as we expand our network. It's gone down to about 90% here, but you know. That's very can I Can I tell you there's no recession out there? I had family in town this weekend. We're in the seaport. We went to this like miniature golf place. You, you walk in the door and you're just like. Oh, putter shack? Uh, no recession here. Yeah. You go next door at King's Bowling Alley. No recession here. Trillium Brewery. Everyone is out spending oh, money. Wait, back up. Was putter shack fun? Oh, uh, yeah, it was very cool. We're taking our whole team there uh, next week, actually. Oh, nice. First time, yeah. It's going to be fun. It was good. Got room for another? I'm in. <laughs> you're invited. So I invite myself. You're invited. We, we have, you're on the team. We yes. have putt shack because we can't fit a uh, Top Golf over here. But no, they're top, opening a uh, Top Golf in Canton. That's not Boston, my friend. Is that how you're seeing the market, Sean? Do you feel like no recession here? Yeah, look, I, 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 I think right now, currently, yeah, the amount of people that are spending um, is amazing. Like, I haven't noticed a slowdown yet. I do think it's on the horizon. I think we'll probably be in some sort of recession by the end of the year nationally. But this market that we're in here in Boston is totally different ball game. So right in time for Dan and Ray to finish their building? Yeah. yeah. Hyper, hyper localized so, is how the whole real estate market really is. Housing typically does really great in recessions. If you look back at those same six recessions, you know, you see home prices increased in all but one. You know, in 2008, home prices went down across nationally, you know, maybe 20% nationally here, less than that. But that was a recession that was caused by housing, a housing crisis that created a recession. All the other ones, home prices always increase. So it's not something I'm like concerned about. I think our housing market with the low inventory that we have here, we're going to rock and roll through it. It's kind of interesting too now because like the Fed was running out of ammunition. When interest rates are zero, like how are you going to add more spike to the punch, you know? But now, now they can actually. <laughs> yeah, you're 100% right. And you can be like Japan and have negative interest Negative interest, interest yeah, that's. That would be nice. Start yeah. putting money under your pillows. Like what do you nice. do at that point? I wish I could sell negative money. Yeah. That'd be fun. I think I do. No, they, take, they, they, take, they take their money and put it into crypto or they put it in another country. You yeah. Know? That's because no one in Japan is having kids, but that's a separate. Yes, it is. That's a different discussion. podcast. Yes. China's actually going to have that issue. And we're going to, if we didn't have immigration, then yeah. we'd have the same problem. So, well, I got kids. I'm not helping. They're expensive. They <laughs> so, are expensive. Oh my expensive. gosh, they're crazy. <laughs> they yeah. do promote spending. You spend, spend, spend everywhere. How, how many kids? I have three little girls. Three girls. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah you, ever, you want a boy? 
uh, go, you you know go for broke? No, we're done. We're, we're, we're cooked. We're, uh, I'm happy with my three. Uh, they keep us plenty busy. So it's good that you answered that way. Your daughters would listen to this podcast in like 50 years and like, yeah, when we're like the number one podcast in the country. I found out that my dad, when I listened to real estate addicts, he always wanted a boy. My my heart is full ladies. Yeah. There you go. It's great. So do you think other parts of the country though? I mean, we're obviously in, as we were saying, it's just, we're in such a little microcosm of a market up here in the Northeast. And so we have such a little inventory. Do you think other parts of the country will continue to feel more effects of rising rates than we will? So yes, although I think we're heading back towards more traditional market and the places that were always busy are are, going to continue to be busy. A market like Boston, you know, in the last couple of years, there was markets that exploded that historically didn't even make sense. But like you had, you know, everybody thought for a while that everybody was going to allow remote work forever. So you could move wherever you wanted. There was a lot of speculation in certain affordable markets, you know, so I think you're referring to Boise, Idaho right there on yeah, that. Like, you know, uh, there, that's like number one. You know, there's places that just exploded. Even like a market like, you know, like Austin, Texas, for example, had a great run. And it's and it's going to continue to do well. But the, it got so, it went up so fast that you're seeing inventory creep up there all of a sudden. That's a place that has a pretty strong job market. A lot of industries moving there, et cetera. Even Florida, we're noticing a little bit of a slowdown right now in parts of Florida. Sure. Still hot but not anywhere near as- I mean, they're building like crazy. So the challenge here in Boston is that like, generally when you build inventory, you're replacing other inventory. Over there in certain markets like that, like they just build on the land they have. They can just go out and out and out and build the same house over and over again a thousand times. You know, you can't really do that here. You know, you have to be a lot more strategic here in terms of like what you build and how you build it and taking advantage of zoning and all that kind of stuff and being smart. But there it's not as hard. It's kind of a tangent, but I heard uh, this clip of uh, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, and he's sort of saying, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, you cannot open a business here. If he funds an early seed startup, absolutely 100% will not put that business in any of those four states. Jamie California. Diamond, Jamie Diamond at Chase said the yeah. same thing. Yeah. California. Florida, Texas. Yeah. is where he's building. I, I, I think California is almost ahead of us in that curve. Like I think businesses are leaving and people are really leaving oh, yeah. and it, it, they're, they're looking not great. And you can break it is what I like to say. Like, I know we're so resilient in the Ted's and uh, the tech and the Ed's and the meds, but man, continue down this path and we, we could be like California. So it's my pleasure. Are we becoming a, po- I was going to say, are we becoming yeah. a political podcast? Yeah, yeah, Cause yeah, I, yeah. I'm Well, San Fran, yeah. San Fran is, in, San Francisco's in trouble. I think Big that's time. what I keep hearing. I heard, I heard the, um, you know, the crime and then, you know, it, the, just the level of safety is, is not good. I mean, you saw, uh, you know, unfortunately there was like a very well-known tech founder that was murdered. Like, uh, yeah. just, yeah. just mm-hmm. last week, I forget who it was, what company it was, but it was, it was cash like, app, uh, cash app founder, yeah. Yeah. like two in the morning yeah. in some like posh area. Yeah. You know? So, so I, like, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's Chicago's kind of going down that hole. Chicago's not so yeah. hot right now. Like we do a lot of my, you know, we do a lot of business in those markets and like, you know, you're seeing people leave. So I, we're, you know, I mean, right now, it, it does make me appreciate Boston for what we have currently, mm-hmm. but it also makes you realize you can't screw it up. No, yeah. Right. Saying things like rent control is is not favorable for uh, you know, <laughs> that slippery slope. But it's more it's more the um the living experience. If you keep it, you know, reasonable, then that should be good. But can we go back to the the inventory yeah. statement? So on a single family versus multifamily, because Mark made comment earlier about, you know, our, our project in Lynn. So we have 30 units coming on, they're all rentals. Yep. But what I've read is that the inventory that's coming on is predominantly all multifamily. And that's another 
kind of reason why the housing market's kind of in this weird bifurcated state because we're going to have a ton of multifamily coming online and not much single family. So you're talking about at least around primarily here. apartments, apartments, right, right. Rentals versus, you know, dwellings. Yeah. I mean, you know, I agree. I mean, the single, the single family where, and that's predominantly, you know, I do residential mortgages, right? So like where I live. Well, yeah, maybe we should just clarify. So you're primarily yeah, residential. I don't do any commercial. So like, I don't really live so much in that like multifamily, like five units or greater. I'm that stuff's rarely ever coming across my desk. So I don't really, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that side of the business. Well, maybe condos, like yeah. if there's a condos, condo yeah. development. So yeah, I mean the condo stuff, it's, you know, that's interesting right now. Cause like you're seeing, I'm what I'm noticing is that there's definitely a little bit of new construction inventory starting to kind of stay on. Uh, like it's not, it's not go getting gobbled up as fast. So last year, last fall and winter was definitely a tougher market, you know, 2022 market just set, you know, you had rates double right. pretty much unexpectedly and overnight. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Uh, if you go back to all the experts at the beginning of last year, there's not one of those so-called experts that uh, called rates going up to six or 7%. So then it happened and you had people kind of freeze a little bit and not do anything. Now you're starting to see, you know, I think where you're seeing is the, the, the challenge to it is like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough market, right. In a lot of ways for developers, because, you know, their rates all went up. Like I saw something this morning that the floating rate for a developer at the beginning of last year was three and a half percent on average. And here we are today, it's almost 8% as the Fed has continued to raise rates. So they've got increased kind of overhead on a monthly basis in terms of cost. They priced like everything was pricing the previous, like at the beginning of 2022, what we've seen the stuff moving now is the stuff that's been priced accurately to the market. The market never lies, right? So how much of an adjustment is that? Yeah, I mean, I see it, it, it's not like 10 or 20%. It's like four or 5%, okay. right? Uh, in my opinion. Is so, that accompanied by higher down payments from, from buyers now? Or are they kind of bridging that gap that way? And not really. People are just, you know, so the cool thing is this, and this is where I think sometimes we, we maybe over, like it showed... What I learned last year was that when rates went from 3% to 7% and the market only depreciated in the last part of the year by 3% is that there's a lot of buying power out there. You know, people aren't really living paycheck to paycheck. You know, I know that like I put myself in a situation when I'm buying a house, like if I really want that house, I'm going to buy it. If it's a little bit, if it's 500 or 800 or $1,000 more a month than what I expected to buy or for budget for initially what I do and what we're doing as financial professionals advising our clients and we work with other advisors too is you figure out ways to cut out somewhere else right like especially when you're making a housing purchase decision rates and twos and threes were like make-believe rates like they were only or the only reason they were there was because of this global pandemic and the fed response to it we're kind of you know and I think six and seven is a little bit higher than everybody anticipated we're settling down into like the fives I think we might even be you know heading back down to the fours in fours and fives the real estate market's like kind of where it needs to be, mm -hmm. you know, and people expect those type of rates. And I think the real estate market does very well and people can budget accordingly. Uh, so I'm not seeing really much bigger down payments. In fact, it's going the other way. You're, you're starting to see clients because the market's a little bit slower, winning with like lower down payments, five and 10%. And, and, and there's also all these other great programs that are out there now that allow for lower down payments. So, uh, you know, at the challenge, I, I think... You know, what was great to be a buyer, if you could actually win a house a couple of years ago, was rates were in twos and threes, right? But it was really hard to win because like you'd compete against people with cash and multiple offers, wave contingencies, way over asking because it fueled that. 
Now it's a little bit easier to win as a buyer because although the rates are a little bit higher, prices are a little bit more moderate, but you can also have a contingency. You can actually get your offer accepted. There's less competition. So every market creates opportunity, just a different opportunity. Sure. Um, and I think start, people are starting to realize that. And as the volatility goes away, I think what also happens is that when things stabilize, people will kind of lose that little bit of fear and they, they start making offers again. And are you, are you seeing, seeing right the volatility kind of going away? Because obviously yeah. I've, like it's been up and down, up and down for like the last six months. So, so I would say the last six months was about as volatile as it got, right? Like, so, you know, look, did I expect the banking crisis in the March of 2023? Like I didn't have yeah. that on my, uh, right. that on your bingo card. <laughs> yeah. So like, but we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of volatility. Look, it's to be expected anytime the Fed raises rates nine times that it's going to create volatility. And they always say they're going to raise until something breaks, right? I think one of you guys might have just said that already. Mm -hmm. And like, and something broke, right? And and usually they, and they're already starting to forecast that maybe they're only increase one or two more times and then start to cut. When they start to cut, that means like we're on the other end of this thing and that volatility will go away. If anything, it'll be volatile on the way down, right? And that's like a good kind of uh, volatile, if you want to call it like it's, um, so I think, you know, I personally believe 2024 is going to be an amazing year in real estate. My forecast, and I hope it comes through is that rates will come down a little bit and we'll be in like the fives and fours again, as inflation goes away, because rates fall inflation. If inflation is going away and we're getting back down to target levels, that also means the fed will stop increasing rates and they'll start cutting. And we know when the fed starts cutting rates, the stock market eats that up every single time. Then all of a sudden you have a stock market run. And if you have some consumer confidence and wealth created by the stock market going up and low interest rates and affordability created at the same time, the housing market always does really well during those times. And it's going to be a low inventory environment. So home prices will continue to kind of move themselves forward. So I'm pretty bullish about 2024. I do think volatility will continue this year because like we're still in that weird cycle of like there's still that underlying banking issue. The Fed's still probably going to raise rates one or two more times, maybe three but I think we're getting closer to the end of it than we are at the beginning of it. Yeah, it's all, yeah, about, it's all about inflation, yeah. right? I mean, I certainly hope we yeah. are. Can't, can't take, you know, another 500 basis point move no. in the next 12 months. Yeah, and again, I'm, I tend to be an optimist, right? And I always try to find the opportunity in every market. It's served me well so far. But like, you know, that's kind of, you know, I also study this stuff. I'm in it every single day. And that's just what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, I feel like what we're in is the new normal. Yeah. You know, I like to say no one wanted to be the first one to tell their friends at the uh, at the dinner party that they just paid six and a half percent for an interest rate. Yeah. But now you show up and you're like, yeah, I just got six and a quarter safe. They're like, ah, yeah, let's mark it. Okay, let's keep talking. It's like you didn't want to be the one that got COVID, COVID first. Yeah, a little bit. You're so right. So you know what's funny is I remember this, right? When rates went from two to three and all of a sudden I, I'd quote somebody like three and a half last year, right? They'd be like, oh, that's that's kind of higher than I thought. I was like, I thought I was going to get something the twos. Then, you, then I quoted them something as rates kept going up in the four. They're like, oh, that rate sucks. And then you were like five, they're like, that rate sucks. And then six, they're like, that really, really sucks. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they went from six down to like fives for a minute. And they're like, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah. so it's so funny how yeah. that happens. You know, it's, it's all about like, when Relative you feel like experience. it's going up, you feel like you're losing something yeah. on their way down. You feel like you're taking advantage of opportunity. Well, yeah. then you'll, you'll get the mass refis yeah. once the rates start coming back down. Yeah, right? we're pretty, we're thinking big refi boom, 2024. And it seems to be kind of like uh the forecasts again for that. I mean, everybody's starting to kind of roll out their numbers for next year and everybody seems to be predicting lower rates than now. So the good part is here in Massachusetts, it's such an easy state to refinance in. And it's Why so is that? Because the costs are almost nothing, right? Like you pay an attorney for lender's title insurance, re-record a mortgage, 
and, and it's just cheap. Whereas a state like New York or Florida, super expensive to refinance in. It's almost cost prohibitive. Really? Yeah. You know what I'm always I'm surprised, surprised with about? Florida there. If you have a commercial mortgage uh, a loan and rates come down 18 months after you signed and you go to another bank and you try to take out the original bank, penalty. yeah, you get a huge penalty. Yeah, mm-hmm. Not in the residential world. Well, not world, if you negotiate It's properly. amazing that, that that is the case, though. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, you know, they were created after 2008. And uh-huh. like the prepayment penalty is one of the big things they went after. Huh. And uh, you don't really have any prepayment penalties on residential mortgages anymore. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Just want to take a quick break and thank our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners, Dave Grossman, one of the principals there. He is awesome to work with. If you need financing, quick acquisitions, or looking to do something debt and equity structured, reach out to us. We can make an introduction. Be happy to do that for you. And now back to the episode. I think I remember my first three family I bought. I think I refied like three or four times in one year at one point because the rates just kept dropping yeah. and dropping, dropping. They're like, refinance with no money out of pocket. And I was yeah, like, no. just roll your closing costs into the loan. And it's like, it right. keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. I was like, okay. Yeah, you're seeing a big increase in adjustable rate mortgages this year too because a lot of clients are taking those on as a way to save some money in the short term, maybe doing like a five, seven mm-hmm. or 10 year arm because they're like, well, why would I pay for 30 years of security if I'm going to refinance next year anyways? We've talked about this, but yeah. nobody ever lives in their home for 30 years. Oh. Even if they, uh, they were very, very, very rare. few. I mean, Nowadays, statistically, yeah. if you ask someone at the mortgage at the closing table, you got a thirty-year mortgage. How come? Yeah, and they, they'll tell you one thing. And I think if you interview them ten years later, I think if it was they I, moved two times. I think if you were changed. interviewing our parents' generation, yeah. the answer would be very different. Yeah. This is this is coming My from par- Mark, who moves once every two years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long have your parents been in their house? No, they they moved. They sold it. Well, how before they but sold? That, yeah, it was twenty years. <laughs> twenty years. So close. But, um, Hey, this is a dumb question. This is this is almost a softball, but we talked about uh, down payment amounts as it relates to a uh, purchase, an offer to purchase. How come a higher down payment rate is less advantageous for the seller or, or vice versa? Like if you're selling a property and you're reviewing offers and somebody has a low down payment or someone is putting down a big down payment, can you explain that? Yeah. So, process? you know, I do tend to get frustrated sometimes because like, you know, especially in multiple offer situations, the seller will make a decision based on the size of the down payment they see when all things are equal because they perceive a lot of times on the seller side, from what I hear is they perceive that bigger down payment is signifies a stronger buyer. And I kind of call BS on that because the down payment is just one indicator. You know, somebody could have a great down payment, but their income could not qualify. Their credit could be terrible. All that kind of stuff. Just mean there's three qualifying factors, income, credit, and assets. Down payment is the only part they can see because they can't. You're not submitting your credit score and your tax statements with your. Uh, Wouldn't that be offering. interesting? Yeah. World, yeah, yeah. But I get it. Realtors and sellers are like, oh well, they're putting a bigger down payment down. They have more cash. That means they must be more financially secure, and that's totally not the case. There's a lot of 10 percent down buyers that I have that are way more qualified than somebody with 30 or 40 percent down sure. because I'm looking at the total picture. It's don't uh, put that much stock in that. Don't put that much stock in it. There's a lot of preconceived notions out there that like. I just can't fix. That's a good answer because I was sort of asking for a friend in Eric once because I just got an offer and I was like, it's a little, but anyway, yeah. that's, that's good. You already touched on it with the arms. Yep. Were there any other strategies like rate buy downs that you saw people working through as you navigated this crazy volatility? The probably most popular thing that came into play over the course of the last couple of months on a couple projects in the city, as an example, I've had the developers reach out to me and say, hey, we want to make you the preferred a lender on this project and what we'll offer to potential buyers is a temporary buy down and we'll fund that ourselves to make it more attractive. Hmm. And so they essentially 
pay for the uh, interest savings over the course of the first two years. The most popular temporary buy down is like a two one buy down. And so the- Can you client, explain what that? Yeah, yeah sorry. I was gonna. So like, let's just oh, say today's 30-year fixed rate is 5.99%, uh, right? That's the average 30-year fix. Well, with a 2-1 buy-down, the client will get a 2% reduction in rate the first year, 1% reduction in rate the second year, then it goes back to that 599. So year one, the rate's 399 for all 12 payments, then it goes up to 499 for the remaining 12 payments, and then, that, and then it goes to 599 for the remaining 28 years. Buyers love it because one, they save money for the first two years and it's pretty considerable. It could be a $10,000, $12,000, sometimes more. And that's how much the seller is actually paying. They're paying the exact cost savings of interest savings. I was gonna ask years. what the cost to the developer or seller is. is. Literally, if you just figure out the savings on a monthly basis for those 24 months, the, that's dollar for dollar what the seller is paying. And so uh, what why buyers like it is because they save money for the first two years, but they also, there's no unknown for the remaining 28 years. Like they know what their rate's gonna be. Whereas like an adjustable rate mortgage to some people is a little bit scarier. They're like, okay, I know what my rate is for the first five years, but then I don't know what it's gonna be. And nobody can tell me what it's gonna be over the course of the remaining 25 years on a five-year arm or something like that. We know what the caps are and the protections are, but nobody can give me an exact number. Are they locked in for the first two years? So like if they wanna refi in year two, can they do that or? Yeah, they can get out of the loan at any time they want. There's no prepayment penalty. There's no restrictions. They can refinance in six months two months, 12 months, like it doesn't matter. And the cool part is, is that, so what the sell, what the developer does that's covering the cost of that buy down is that money sits in an escrow account with the lender. And that every month we take money out to make that interest payment. If they refinance in six months, whatever's left over unused just gets applied to the principal balance of the loan. That's awesome. Yeah, it's wow. awesome. So it's a no brainer for a buyer and sellers have been doing it with a lot of success because it, it, it it's very attractive to buyers. You know? hmm. So that's been, that's probably adjustable rates, temporary buy downs, seller paid closing costs, other things that have come up, you know, jumbo mortgages up until about a month ago for the last few years were cheaper than conventional mortgages. Now it's, it's getting, uh, the banks of re-risking and, uh, you've seen jumbo rates tick up a little bit. So those have been some of the, some of the things that we've seen that have kind of happened as a result of this. And you think those will be successful going forward for the rest of the year as I well? Do. I think, you know, the fall is always going to be a little bit slower than the spring, right? It happens. It's a traditional market again. The only time the fall was as busy as the spring was 2020 and 2021. And now because in the spring of 2020, there was no market. And then in, in 2020, and then in 2021, the 30-year fixed rate was 2.75%. And it was like, you know, just adding gasoline. So it just never slowed down. But every year the fall is a little bit quieter. And so I think you'll see a little bit more negotiating in the fall and the winter, uh, like you historically do. And things get a little bit tighter and tougher in the spring, uh, like we're seeing right now. Interesting. Yeah. So have you? So you've seen a little bit of a slowdown? Well, the spring- Or, or the, the spring market, have you big, seen a, a, a big pickup? Pick yeah, I've since, pick since like the last six weeks, mortgage applications are way up, uh, not just with us, but like across the industry. I saw a lock volume across the industries way, way up, almost up 40% from the month prior. You know, it's amazing how when rates come down a little bit, everything kind of gets fixed. Mm -hmm. And then historically, like, you know, more and more inventory is coming on. I was just, um, you know, as I'm talking to agents, like they're, even the ones that were slow in January and February, noticeably got kind of cooking in March and April. So yeah, yeah bridging the gap between what people's existing rates are and, and the current rates will help because that was a reason why a lot of people didn't want to list it unless they really had to. So yeah, that's think, kind of cool here in the boots on the ground. I think stories. what happens is like whenever there's just like volatility and change and, and shock, like people freeze. And then eventually like everybody's expectations for both buyers and sellers kind of normalize. And when that normalization happens, kind of like we were talking mm -hmm. about, people start to act again. 
And so I think that's what's happening too. Yeah, no, I agree for sure. Sometimes we'll hear an announcement from the Fed and although they're tied together, the correlation isn't always one-to-one. It's not a perfect correlation between the interest rate you can offer, say, and what the chairman, chairwoman of the Federal Reserve uh, has to offer. How come? Yeah, so the Fed is a short-term Fed. It's a short-term rate business to business, right? So when the Fed funds rate goes up, a lot of my clients think that their mortgage rates go up and that's not the case at all. So like, because a 30-year fixed rate, like that is a mortgage-backed security bond that's much more long-term, not short-term. So when the Fed fund rates goes up, what does go up is credit card rates go up, auto loan rates go up, home equity lines of credit go up, construction loans all go up. But residential mortgage rates actually don't. A lot of times, actually, if you look back even this year when the Fed's announced a rate increase, especially recently, mortgage rates have actually come down. Mortgage rates, you know, if you're looking for an indicator to watch the 30-year fixed rate, you're probably better off watching like the 10-year T-bill. Hmm. Uh, that's a better indicator of like what's going on with uh, which way mortgage rates are going. Rate Mortgage rates follow inflation. So when inflation goes up, 30-year fixed rate mortgage rates go up. When inflation comes down, uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgage numbers are going to come down. Like today, we just got positive inflation news this morning and mortgage rates are better. And that's with likely a Fed increase, you know, two to three weeks away. If I was a consumer trying to figure out what's going on with housing and real estate, I would not pay too much attention to what's going on with the Fed funds rates. I would just uh, look at other indicators. I'm kind of hoping the Fed does stick the landing. You know, it's like after this whole 12 to 18 month period where we we saw inflation starting to tick up and then the Fed trying to play catch up and then them raising their rates so much. It's like, did they really rip the bandaid off, sober everybody up and, and kind of bring some normalcy back? It'd be kind of cool if that was the case. I hope so. Because the labor market is still pretty good. It's it's great, actually. Yeah. That's the one thing making them raise rates still, I guess. Everybody's employed. I mean, I don't know any unemployed people. Right. You know, it's like literally like- No recession here. And, and I mean that, like, I don't mean that disrespectful to anybody that could be listening is unemployed, but like most of the people that I know are unemployed choose to be unemployed. Every business owner I talk to is like having a really difficult time finding people to work for. You know, I was pumping my gas the other day and, you know, you, you got that little gas pump. It's got the uh, advertising going on. It's like, come inside and fill out an application and like job starting here at $20 an hour. Yeah. Right. And you see the same thing at like McDonald's and yeah. Dunkin's and all these places like, you know, and, and, and unemployment rates at three and a half percent, you know, and it's so, so you're right. I, I also believe like where we are is like, uh, there's no recession. I do think there's some recession indicators in terms of like credit card debt is at its highest level it's ever been. Savings rates are much lower than they were pre-pandemic. So I think you'll start seeing some habits change. And I think the Fed's trying to going to keep pushing until you start seeing unemployment tick up a little bit. And I do think it will go up to like 4% or 5%, but that's still really low unemployment. You know, it's, um, our, our economy is pretty resilient. I think also depends on the sector too, yeah. sector too right? Yeah. Like, you know, you've seen, like the tech sector has definitely had some layoffs over the last six months or so, you're starting to see some of that, yep. especially yeah. in like the startup world where a lot of like the VC money is drying up. So I think you're starting to see a lot of that trickle down effect there. So you're starting to see it in certain sectors, but I think for, like you said, for the most part, like, you know, finance and a lot of like, you know, pharma, like you're not really seeing any layoffs in those industries. But what's interesting about the tech side, cause I was really watching that pretty closely those people are all finding jobs like immediately. Well, that, yeah. Yeah. They're not just sitting on the sidelines. Right. Like they're getting- There's places to go. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're, so like these places are just reducing their staffs kind of back to the headcounts of where they were pre-pandemic because they all grew so much, but it's not like they're just, you know, all these, like, you know, think about all the tech, like all the biggest companies in the world, 
laid off 10% of their workforce mm. and like unemployment didn't move, hmm. you know, it's like, cause they all found jobs right away. Yeah. It's like, and I'm sure that will not, that's unsustainable. Like if it keeps happening, eventually it will go up. But like, it's like, we're like, it's amazing. Like yeah. if you think right. about like all these really smart people that got laid off and they already found jobs right away. I mean, it's one industry, right? Yeah. So it's not, yeah. it's not a yeah. across the board kind of thing. And yeah. again, yeah. being in tech is probably a blessing because you do have the opportunity for remote work. So yeah, I mean, there's so many things at play, but it's uh, cool to hear that. Hopefully, I'm, like I said, my to my point, I hope we stick the landing. Nobody wants to go through all that pain and then have no. to deal with the, the yeah. downside of it. They've got an incredibly hard job. You oh, know? they can't please anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, I, I know it's, uh, they could say what everybody wanted to hear, and then a week later, more data will come out and be like, "What a bunch of idiots!" You know. Well, I, you know, it sounds like funny. being a developer. This is not a political <laughs> statement at all, right? But. I was watching, I'm always watching, right? And I remember, you know, Elizabeth Warren was crushing the Fed chairman like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. right? I saw she, yeah, yeah. Gonna oh, that was after the SBB. You're gonna create though. unemployment. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna take away his job. Crushing him, yeah. crushing him. And like, so what you're trying to do is create unemployment, which she said to him, he's like, you know, and he's like talking through it. But like two years ago, you know, she, they were all over him, same person being like, you know, you got to put stimulus out there. And if you don't put stimulus out there, we're going to go into a recession, all that stuff. So it's like, it's like yeah. literally like, what's he, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad I don't have his job. Or you got to raise rates yeah. to, you know, inflation's yeah. out of control, yeah. raise the rates. Yeah. It's yeah. like, there's no winning. It's like, and everything costs so much money. Like people can't afford to live. Yeah. And it's, so it's like, I literally like, don't know what I would, I mean, granted, I, I'm not qualified to be the Fed chairman. So like, I'm, I don't know, but I mean, they've got a really hard job, man. And so I hope they nail it too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, talking about the Fed, not that I want to belabor it anymore. Yeah. I will change topics. Yeah. Fed now. Yeah. Big CBDC, central bank digital currency. You hearing anything about that in like the mortgage world? No, yeah. stuff. No, you know what we're talking, it's interesting. We were talking a lot of crypto in 2020 and 2021. I felt like every single one of my clients is like, well, you know, I was like, go through their assets with them. And everybody's like, I got this and Coinbase and all this stuff, like everybody. And they wanted to use their money for the down payments. And we figure out how to do it, right? Like, we navigated through it and figure out how to trace everything. And we were kind of getting somewhere. And then literally like the time, since it, like nobody even wants to talk about it anymore. Nobody's even listed on their mortgage applications anymore. Uh, nobody's using it for their down yeah, payments. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been some talk of mortgage companies like, you know, utilizing blockchain and stuff like that. But it's like not for a while, for like one month, mortgage companies started accepting mortgage payments in crypto mm -hmm. and then that all disappeared. So it's kind of been off the radar to be honest with you on our side, I'm sure it'll come back as it starts to recover, which it already has. But truthfully, the last six months, I haven't heard a peep about crypto in the mortgage world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I keep hearing like the feds introducing their digital currency yeah. and people are freaking out. Yeah. So let's talk the difference between commercial mortgage and residential mortgage. If you're buying an investment property, yeah. You can still qualify. I can still call you and say I'm buying what a f up to a four up to, unit, yeah. four yeah, unit two building? to four units, I'm, and I can okay. own ten of them before you can say I can't service you anymore. Yeah, well, you can own as many as you want, but you can have uh, ten finance properties. So, like, it's, oh. uh, effectively, like you know, you can own like if you don't have a mortgage on it, mm -hmm. then we, you know we don't count that as a part of our. So there's there's clients out there that own some properties that don't have that on it, but we just care about the amount of finance properties you have. Now, truthfully. That's also changing too. Like we're starting more and more residential mortgage lenders are kind of going away from that maxed finance, max amount of finance properties. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the guidelines that people are starting to realize, well, if I can qualify, like why do I care how many yeah. finance properties they have? So you're starting to see more and more lenders get way more flexible with that. And so but the benefit, they, sorry, no, go ahead. I was going to say, but do you have to, do they have to be owner occupied to have a residential mortgage or no? Or no. just in your name? Just clarify that. So I make sure. I so if I'm buying a four unit building, yeah. 
you can buy a Fannie and Freddie backed mortgage yeah. product without living in that house. You, yeah. can, you can say it's an But you can't put property. it, you can't put it in an LLC Correct. or some type of. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac yeah. will not let you put it in an LLC. Can you put it yeah. in a trust? You can put it in a real estate investment trust, yeah. From a practical perspective, yeah. if you're making your payments and then you move the property to an LLC and you continue making your payments. Yeah, so I gotta be careful yeah. with what I, I say. Well, I think we're gonna cut that. that. that, that, called, that. Yeah. I was like, Mark. That, that Mark is we're, called fraud. Yeah, we're 100, one, Alex, 100% cut that. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, was gonna say, I, I think the advantage of your product is that it's 30 year fixed, right? You can, yeah, yeah. So we can do a 30 year fixed. We have adjustable rates. I mean, the rates you know, are typically lower than commercial rates. I don't know. Not right now, though. Not right now. Yeah. yeah so it's, oh, they're really, okay. So this is the first time. It's like, a, it's a, the commercial lenders are, um, it's actually interesting. But but they also almost all do adjust rate mortgages. I'm right? looking at like right now because yeah. I'm trying to hold a four unit building because I think that the I think that the economy is going to continue to pick up and all those good things. But I'm looking at seven and a quarter with a Fannie or Freddie loan right now on this versus like six and a quarter. Yeah, uh, for a five year. So, so what yeah. happened is when the economy started to shift, he, you're 100 right, Mark. When the economy started to shift, whatever reason, Fannie and Freddie, what I've noticed. Just my observations in the residential mortgage world of they're really starting to shift their focus on primary residence. And they're not as crazy about second homes and investment properties anymore. That they don't feel like that's why they were put out there to help the housing market. They feel like they really want to help the homeowner that wants to buy and live in their property. Private so they, jets. <laughs> so they've pulled back, they've pulled back on their investment property and second home rates a little bit. So you're right. So a lot of the commercial lenders are actually uh, pricing up better, but we have a lot of those alternative portfolio banks and stuff that want that kind of business. That's that's the benefit of like why I work where I work in terms of the type of platform is like I cast a really wide net. Not everything we have to do is Fannie or Freddie, but it's a, it's made us go out and find new investors that have appetite for that type of stuff. And there's definitely plenty of people that want that type of business. Nice. We should yeah. chat after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so can we maybe shift gears from? The, the mortgage side to kind of the business side yeah. and talk a little bit about how you got started and how you grew. And then maybe at what point, and you know, maybe talk about how your team is structured. Yeah. And it's a what, lot. That's like, it is a lot. It is a lot. So one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. How'd you get into, how'd you get tell, into selling mortgage? Tell us your life story. Yeah. <laughs> Starting with cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in Watertown. Yeah. So, all right. How I got into mortgage business. Uh, I graduated from Bentley College, now Bentley University. And, um, you know, I was uh, working at my first job and I hated it. And uh, What was that job? It was, I was a property manager. Well, yeah, yeah, no terrible, wonder why you hated terrible. it. <laughs> Especially as like a 21-year-old. You, know, you don't do a lot of fun property management work as a 21-year-old. So I decided uh, I had this great idea. I was going to, I quit my job. I started applying to, took the LSAT and started applying to law school. And so I wanted to be an attorney. That was my genius idea. So I applied to, uh, you know, Suffolk, New England School of Law, all these places, and I was waiting to figure out what I was going to do. And then I ran into a buddy of mine at the gym and this was 2002 and he was in the mortgage business. And he's like, you should do the mortgage business while you're going to law school. And he's like, you, you know, the business is hot. Real estate was hot. He's like, you can do a couple loans a month, pay for law school, all that kind of stuff. So I was like, you know what? Sounds like a great idea. And like, that's literally how I ended up in the mortgage business is like, yeah. I, if I didn't run into that. And, and the reason I was at the gym during the daytime was because I was, you know, trying to take these tests and I was working at a nightclub in Boston is like a door guy when my friend was a bartender, right? Like that's literally like how it ended up happening. I don't know what he was doing there in the middle of the daytime, but apparently the mortgage <laughs> business is good. However, I did, so I literally fell into the mortgage business. I, I will say 
upon doing it, I immediately knew I loved it, right? It was just like, kind of was like, I just enjoyed it. I was having fun with it. It was sales, it was finance, it was competitive. It was, uh, you were helping people. Like I, I was fulfilled pretty quickly. Fast forward to 2007, I had been in it for about four years, having a lot of success. And the mortgage company I was working for at the time literally closed its doors overnight. Like literally I got a phone call and it was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, you know, nothing. He's like, can you shut your door? I was like, yeah. He's like, we're shutting it down. I was like, shutting what down? <laughs> He's like, the whole thing, we're laying off 3,000 people today. Whoa. And it was closed overnight. And I literally went from like being on like, you know, fast track at, at, in the industry to like literally being unemployed the next day. And so I had a decision to make, like all my buddies at the time, you know, we we're in Boston, everybody was working at places like Oracle and EMC and everybody's doing like that kind of stuff. And part of me was like telling me I should do that, but I really thought I could do this business. So I, I decided to stay in it. I convinced the mortgage company out of New Jersey to let me open up their first branch in Massachusetts. And, um, and they wouldn't do it. They were like, no way, you know, the industry's collapsing. We're just trying to survive. So they required me to move to New Jersey for three months, work there to prove to them that I actually knew what I was doing and learn this side of the business. And I did, I was like, sure, I'll do it. I had nothing to lose. And then, so they finally let me open up my business. We bought, you know, we subleased a place. We bought all used equipment. It was like such a uh, funny thing. Like, I remember I had like, I got a credit card. I had a $10,000 limit on it. And I spent all 10 grand to like open it. And I was like, hopefully this works. Uh, and for the first two years, like it was just me by myself. Like, you know, there was, uh, we had no employees. I had no clients. You know, I, I was buying leads online just to try to have conversations through like lowermybills.com and LendingTree. And then um, as I was doing that and trying to do some business, enough business just to pay the bills, I was out networking, hustling, doing every, I was everywhere. Lunches, coffees, breakfasts, events, seminars, just trying to meet anybody. And at the time- Sorry, that was my, so that was kind of a, a follow-up question I was going to have. Is so like, is the more similar to like a real estate agent, do you have to go, you have to go out and find your clients. They yeah. don't just, you, the phone doesn't ring right. and you just say, hey, I'm looking for a mortgage. Like It was hand-to-hand -hand combat. Like it's like literally just trying to build that network of people that will trust you to refer you their, their professional network, whether it's attorneys, realtors, financial advisors, accountants, whatever. And so like, I just wanted to be like the best mortgage person in like Watertown, Waltham and Belmont. You know, that was like my home base. <laughs> I was like, if I can just do market share, there, I'll be all right. And I'll build a nice little business. And, you know, it grew into Cambridge and Somerville pretty quickly. And then it grew into Boston really quickly. And like, I established a pretty good stronghold in the places like Dorchester and Southie and, and like those markets that were really kind of booming back then. And then, you know, it, it took off. And, you know, at the time, what was good is I was running in to this business when like a lot of people were running out. Right. And so like in hindsight, 2008 was like the best thing that ever happened to me because like I kind of just kept showing up and that was the biggest opportunity that, and this is what I would kind of, the advice I'd give to people right now is like sometimes opportunities presented in the most challenging times, like there's going to be big businesses made uh, over the next, like over what happened last year and into this year. And it's going to be companies that weren't the top of their, uh, and not when I say companies and people and businesses, like it's a massive growth opportunity. And so I just kind of was in when everything was kind of shaky and I was the person that if I didn't have the answer, I'd figure it out, my service level, my availability, I was just on. And so like, I think when things, and all of a sudden then 2010 happened and they rolled out like those first time home buyer credits and you were, uh, you were getting, you know, first time home buyers were incented. And I, I was like hustling for two or three years at that point already. And then the market just kept getting better every year and the rates started coming down and I had already kind of showed up at the right time. And, and then I went all in on like 
staff and support and my team, uh, which a lot of people in my business didn't. Like it was all just like a lot of one person shows that like didn't really care about service level execution. And like, I really wanted to focus on being available 24 seven, having the answers, being able to close quick, knowing stuff like really kind of worked on our business hard. And who was your first hire? My first hire was a guy named Liam, who's still with us today. He runs actually, uh, he was a sales assistant at the time. Also first year grad right out of Bentley. Uh, I didn't even know anybody else. So I went back to my old football coach. I was like, Hey, I need some staff. Like, who do you got? And they referred two people over to me and uh, he was one of them. He was, he was great. He still, he runs uh, my sales team right now is one of the most important people on our team in terms of like the growth of it and the operation of it daily. Uh, and I've made a bunch of super uh, important hires in business development, operations, marketing, sales, like, and, and like ultimately like the success that I'm having it, like, I, I obviously have something to do with it, but really it's a result of like all the really amazing people I've surrounded myself with. I've got some really awesome staff. Like there's no way you can do, we've done $9 billion worth of mortgages. We've done almost 40,000 loans in the last, like, you know, since 2008. Uh, so what's that 15 years? Like, there's no way I can do that by myself. Like there's, a, and then what kept happening to me was like, I kept hitting a ceiling early on in my career and something would suffer. Service level would suffer. My quality of life would suffer. My relationships with my partners would suffer because there's only so much you can do on your own. And then I realized pretty quickly, like, they don't care if it's me handling it. As long as they're getting the service, the answers, the communication that they need for themselves and for their clients. And so like we started to scale pretty quickly and it worked. Timing was a big part of it, taking a gamble in terms of growth. And it really kind of paid off. And, and now we're doing business all over the country. Our market's a lot bigger than Watertown, Waltham and Belmont, but it's still home base for me. And I still deeply care about doing business there. And, you know, we, you just try to kind of make sure that like my focus has always been on growth, growth, growth without service level or uh, quality issues. Like we, I want my, i truly believe that the service level and quality that we offer to our partners and our clients today is much better than it was five years ago and 10 years ago. It was just me doing everything by myself. That's a great story. That's uh, yeah. That's pretty. Now are you, are you, sorry, are you managing? Like, are you still underwriting loans or you do still doing deals? Or are you kind of overseeing the team at this point? A little bit of everything. So I, I'm still, uh, I'm still transactionally involved, not as a big a percentage as I used to be. I still probably handle like two to three transactions a day. I love it. I get, enjoy the deal still. So it's like part of Part of it is me, like not removing myself from it. I spend a lot of time on business development. I spend time with my marketing staff and doing a lot of branding and social media stuff. And then I put out a lot of fires, like, you know, um, so I'm pretty involved in the deals, but I also have a lot of people that work behind the scenes to free me up, that do a lot of stuff for me that allows me to be a lot more hands-on, just at um, a much quicker and more efficient pace. I, I still work extremely hard, but I just work way smarter than I ever have. Nice. Nice. Let's, uh, I think we're coming up on time soon, but I want to do a lightning round. We play a game here called overrated, underrated, I love it. or appropriately rated. Cool. Sounds like, you know, the rules I'm going to throw out, uh, the first term overrated, underrated, appropriately, appropriately rated. rated. Okay. I saw you, you, you've already brought, I've got, got some ideas. Oh. I, uh, well, that's federal nice. truth in lending act. This, this was like the Elizabeth Warren act, right? Yeah. Uh, properly rated. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Appropri appropriately, appropriately, yeah. appropriately rated. Okay. Any comment? You just. You know, it's, it look, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you get like a minute with this game. Yeah. It creates, it creates transparency. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so there was unfortunately a lot of bad actors in our business mm -hmm. before. And so like, it just makes it so that clients have to look at certain documents. I like the transparency in it. Honestly, for me, what it does is that it, it eliminates any back and forth in terms of like, 
I didn't know about this or I didn't know about that. Like you signed it five or six times yeah. like, and we have to, we, it puts the onus on us to really be transparent with that information. So it's okay. That's good. I got one. PMI. PMI. Um, underrated. So like, you know, unfortunately, I think PMI is a great tool, right? And like, so, and it's very inexpensive. I hope my underrated answer is given it. Uh, I, I'm a big yeah. believer in PMI. I think so many clients wait, try to wait until they have 20% in order to buy a house. And whereas they can like, you know, think about it, my clients that bought a house two years ago or three years ago, would that put 3% down? They already have 20% equity. They couldn't have uh, saved up 20% in the last two years while they were waiting. So I think there's a lot of misinformation and going back to our parents' generation, they've been told by their parents, you should never pay PMI. Yeah. PMI might be 80 bucks or hundred bucks and it might be the opportunity for you to create wealth. So uh, I think it's something that people should look into more. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, my mind was going all over the place. I'm gonna throw something out there, iBuyers kind of how they've been overrated. playing the market. Yeah. Yeah. Overrated. Not here. I mean, it's like in other parts of the country, like you'd, you'd hear about what's going on. Like I didn't see it at all in Massachusetts. And, and they're so, uh, the reason I'd say overrated is because they're so in and out of the market. Like to me, it's like, if you're in sometimes and out most of the time, like there's no consistency there. So it's hard for me to take it seriously. No closing cost loans. Underrated. Um, so like, you know, especially on the refinance side, uh, we were talking about this originally, like the power of being able to, you know, there's, again, our parents, they screwed things up for us. Like you should only refinance when your rate goes down by a 1%. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, it's, you know, I could argue that you could refinance if your rate goes down by a quarter percent or an eighth of a point, if it's going to save you interest mm -hmm. and it gives you the flexibility to go in and out of certain products. So, uh, no points, no points, no closing cost loans. I think, uh, definitely give buyers a lot of flexibility to make smart decisions that's cool how about lendingtree.com or all those other various quick uh rocket yeah books overrated yeah, yeah. unfortunately rocket loan. to me the one part of the business that i love is like i have skin in the game with every single client generally because and i have a lot of experience and i can give really great advice um, most of those places are just sales factories where they you know they wouldn't be able to explain half the stuff their the client needs in a market like this in order to win and frankly, the amount of mistakes they make is unbelievable. Like I talk to clients all the time that have accepted offers that have pre-approvals from some of these places that should never have gotten a mortgage, right? And don't qualify. And, and it's because they're not getting good advice. Yeah. It is the most important day of your life in relative terms. And to some guy over there, it's just one of six transactions he's doing that day. Yeah. And if an eye doesn't get crossed and then the whole thing goes to hell, I don't give a, you know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I hear that. And I've been on that side of it and it's, it's really infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> Last one, Ray. Yeah, we talked about those two one buy downs. So, how about the more widely known adjustable rate mortgage products? Appropriately rated. You know, like you have to understand. You know, there's pros and cons with each product. They save interest. They create buying power. They, they allow you to pay more principal. They create confidence in certain markets. But like you know, there's uh, it's not for everybody, right? Like you know, obviously it's an adjustable rate mortgage because you're sharing in the risk with the bank in terms of like um, they're, they're, offer, they're guaranteed some sort of protection as well. So I think it's just really important to understand what your options are, what your protections are in terms of like caps, what the index is and, you know, what the margin is on the loan and like really just being educated. So I think they're a great product that everybody should ask about, but they're not for everybody. Last one for me, uh, Disney World. Oh, underrated. I love it. You know, I have three little girls. We're going there this Friday. I was never a big Disney kid growing up. You know, we just didn't go there. So I was like, uh, but I took my kids last year. They literally had the time of their lives. We had the time of our lives with them. And so much so that we're going back this year. It's a pretty cool place. Uh, from, a, from an experience standpoint, it's amazing. And from a business standpoint, 
you know, I literally bought, I came back and bought some books just to learn about them and how they run their business because it's pretty impressive to watch. Their level of service, execution, consistency uh, is pretty, pretty amazing. They have found a way to monetize everything over there and they, you feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're very smart. Yeah. Do you go hit, you hit up all the parks? All of them. Water park. I'm a big one. water park guy. Like so we did, parks. we did all the Disney's and we did Universal. Uh, we didn't leave Orlando, but um, it, yeah, we hit up everything. Nice. There's a dog barking. I think that means I think that means yeah. it's time, right? <laughs> and the dog barks. This is awesome, Sean. Yeah. If, if folks want to come to your next uh, event or follow you on social media, LinkedIn. Or or need a loan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Shantarate.com is the uh, easiest way to reach me, uh, but we have all our social media platforms as well on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. We'll post them maybe with the uh, with the podcast. Awesome, man. Well, thanks, everybody. Hey, yeah. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, rating, subscribing. See you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.